Hello and welcome to the Global Health Chat. I'm Steph, one of the senior editors of the AMSA Journal of Global Health. And today I'm chatting with Kajanan Paramishwaran about universal basic income. Given that income is a fundamental determinant of health, affecting almost all health outcomes from infant mortality to overall life expectancy, a policy that would provide payments to all is a tantalising public health intervention. So, does universal basic income work and what's stopping us from introducing it? Hi, Steph. Thank you for having me on the podcast. It's my pleasure. Um, so I thought maybe we'll just start with a little bit about you, about the author. So t- tell me about yourself, Kaj. Yeah, so I'm in my final year of medical school at the University of New South Wales. I'm doing my clinical placements in a lovely town called Coffs Harbour on the mid-north coast of New South Wales. Um, so a couple months out from exams, but almost done. Um, and outside of medicine, um, a lot of my interests, I love sport. And I'm a bit of a nerd at heart, as a lot of medical students are. So I love science and history and economics. And I think that's what sort of led me to writing this article. Oh, so no, I think we're all definitely a little bit nerdy at heart. Anyone who says otherwise is definitely lying. But... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, what kind of clinical interests do you have? Um, I'm sort of inclined down that physician training pathway. Uh, I have a bit of a soft spot for renal disease and the complexities that come with it. Um, <laughs> soft but, spot for renal disease. That's my Yes. <laughs> it's a bit weird, isn't it? But like oh. I said, nerd at heart. Um, but also just being in a place like Coffs Harbour, I think you get a real um, love and appreciation for rural medicine and regional medicine. So that's something I'd like to pursue as well in the future. That's incredible. No, no definitely good luck to you with that. It sounds amazing. Thank you. And can you tell me a little bit, how have you coped with the lockdown experience? So we've heard quite a few different stories coming out of this. Some people have had very interesting experiences, some very sad, some very productive. And now it's been really interesting to hear how everyone's gone with it. So what have you been up to? Um, I think I like to count myself as being pretty lucky. Um, sort of when you're living with other medical students and all our placements sort of continuing through the lockdown. Um, so sort of, the impact hasn't been as great as many other people. Um, Mm. It's been a good time to uh, really get to spend time with my colleagues and other students. Um, Sort of missed a lot of that getting outdoors and playing sport. I think that's what I really missed. Um, But in terms of exploring things like reading and delving into those interests that you normally sort of put off, it was a great time for that. And exploring new podcasts actually was something that I actually got up to a lot during this lockdown. I think you'd be on a podcast then. <laughs> no, no. So, yeah, when you asked me to come and have a chat, it was super exciting. It was, oh. Here we go. Here's yeah, the first step to creating my own podcast. Yeah, basically, again, like one step away from um, world fame now, basically. That's it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just need this to go viral. Yeah, absolutely. Look, we'll try and say something really controversial. And we'll, That's it, yeah, yeah. We'll yeah. <laughs> front page of all the newspapers tomorrow yeah exactly like uh, medical students not as nerdy as you think what <laughs> <laughs> awesome. well speaking of how nerdy we are um why don't we have a chat about your fabulous article so this was a really really interesting article um i really liked your take on sort of the health perspective on universal basic income and it's something i think a lot of medical students will actually you know a lot of people probably aren't necessarily familiar with like health economics and how it all impacts 
you know, health a little bit more generally. So I'll leave it to you, the experts, to tell me a little bit more about it. So maybe you could define what is universal basic income? Like, what are we talking about when we say that? Yeah, so, um, so I'll start sort of one step outside. And I think all of us, as we're studying the medical degree and as we're seeing patients, we come to really appreciate how much health is more than just, you know, seeing your doctor and um, taking some medications. You know, a lot of it is determined by what we call the social cultural determinants of health. And of those, income is a massive uh, component. It's basically the core thing that affects all the other factors. And so when we think about um, health and health economics, we're thinking about all the factors that um, determine a patient's well-being and also their access to healthcare um, and the tools that are needed to improve well-being. So within that context, this idea of universal basic income, well, from a basic definitions viewpoint, it's basically defined as a periodic um, unconditional payment to all individuals. So that's without any work criteria or any means testing. And typically a full basic income would be set at a level that matches the poverty um, rate for a particular area. Um, you can also have sort of partial basic incomes which are, act as a stipend but don't actually go up to the full poverty level. And the idea is by setting it at the poverty rate, um, you would substantially, if not totally, reduce absolute or material poverty. Um, there are also other um, systems or quasi-models, um, um, things like negative income tax rates, um, which basically are also unconditional. So you don't need to prove that you're searching for work or that you're studying, but they tend to taper off as you go into higher income brackets as opposed to being a universal thing. Um, however, for the when we consider the actual practical effects, these things like negative income tax rates and universal basic income schemes typically have similar effects because the people who benefit the most from these are those on lower socioeconomic groups or those with um, insecure work arrangements. Mm. No, that's, that's amazing, really. So but what we're sort of talking about, again, I'm very bad with my health economics. Well, I'm bad with my economics, full stop. I it to being a student my entire life and taxes being a very, oh, that's cute kind of thing. <laughs> Wait for that refund to come. That's right? Yeah. Um, so basically what we're talking about is giving a, a payment to everybody that essentially allows us to avoid anyone being below the poverty line. So we're giving yes. people enough to just survive comfortably in, in our in the society that we've built is yeah. that right yeah exactly so hopefully you're covering basic things like food clothing and housing um, mm. and the idea is in a modern prosperous or wealthy society that every citizen should have um, sort of the basic means to cover those mm. basic needs in society mm, absolutely Oh, and I think that makes a lot of sense intuitively that you would want everyone to be, that's, that's kind of the goal that we're going for, right? We want yes, everyone yes. to be above the poverty line and we yeah. want everyone to be contributing to society in whatever way they can yeah. and for it to be a really nice symbi like symbiotic kind of relationship, I suppose. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, I guess that's what's really brought um, universal basic income back into the, the fore. Um, this idea that we could be talking about giving money to everyone regardless mm -hmm. Um, of the income would have been like, we would not be having this conversation five, 10 years ago, but there's sort of been this resurgence 
um, of universal basic income um, following the global financial crisis. And you saw all these people losing their jobs and um, struggling for meals on a daily basis. And you're thinking we're in a modern prosperous society. Why is this allowed to occur? And I think that's what's brought the discussion back into the mainstream and things like automation and the loss of sort of job and employment security. Yeah, absolutely. Like the world is definitely changing. And I think people are now a little bit more ready to have these conversations. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Makes been, a little bit more sense. Yeah. I think to say there's been um, some global shifts is, is quite the understatement in the last couple of years. Yeah. And yeah, no, there's definitely been nothing gigantic, nothing, no major crises happening in the last well, several months, really. But, yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. No, but, um, no I, I agree that like there's been a bit of an, a changing attitude and undercurrent that's been happening for a few years now, well, well before the um, coronavirus hit and we had this drastic change in the way society was structured. So Absolutely, yeah. I think it's definitely a good time to start having these sort of conversations about how we're going to move forward, how we're going to take advantage of this changing sort of global landscape, I suppose. Yeah. So obviously this, you know, this model can't be perfect. Otherwise we would have done it already. So yes. it's been well, it's been well criticized. Yes. So do you really want to take us through what's been the journey with universal basic income? It has been proposed before in the past. Yes. So it was sort of first proposed. One of the earliest proponents was a guy called Thomas More back in the 17th century. And he wrote a book called Utopia. Um, and it was basically an imagined world uh, where everyone would receive an income. And so for, quite a lot of time and even now is considered a utopian ideal, this idea that you could give everyone free money. It was sort of uh, discussed on and off during the 17th centuries and the 18th century, but in the 19th century, particularly in the 1960s and 70s, um, President Nixon in the United States basically won election with this idea that he wanted to end poverty. Now he was a Republican, a conservative president, um, and he was influenced a lot by sort of uh, libertarian ideals or this idea that we should be freeing people and this idea that if you give everyone a basic income uh, everyone has the freedom to choose how they want to live their life and that might be to seek employment to improve their living standards or it might be to stay at home and look after family members either the elderly or the young um, seek greater um, education opportunities, etc. So it's something that actually many on the economic right were typically against sort of government programs were pretty comfortable with because this was giving government money straight into the hands of the people. And so it almost actually got legislated in the United States in the 60s and 70s. And it was around this time that a whole uh, bunch of trials into universal basic income were conducted to see if this is a workable idea. So there was about five or six American towns that had little pilot projects where they trialed the universal basic income. Unfortunately, in one of the study results, um, they found that there was, and later on, this was actually shown to be an error, but there was a 50% increase in divorce rates. And this really scared off uh, the president and a lot of his supporters. And so that idea was abandoned. Um, but interestingly enough, this discussion in the United States also prompted a lot of discussion in Australia. So a lot of members of the Labour Party around that time were making speeches in Parliament also about universal basic income, but it never really took off. Mm. And so that idea was completely forgotten about. And like, I must admit, like, I would never have thought that you could just give money to everyone. It just seemed like a crazy idea, but it almost mm. actually occurred. And then with the global financial crisis, it sort of came back up into the fore, particularly in Europe, 
um, um, where there was a basic income uh, network created and they'll do a conference every two years. So there are people in the background sort of still promoting this idea. And then over the last sort of five years with the loss of jobs uh, through automation, particularly in a large swathes of the United States, a lot of this has come back into the fore. So Andrew Yang, who is a uh, candidate for the uh, Democratic Party in America, really brought it. He made it a core feature of his campaign and brought it into sort of the political mainstream. Um, and so scientific institutions have now also started following that and doing additional studies. We've had um, universal basic income trials in places like fin Finland, um, the Netherlands. Um, and there's also a big push in the NGO and charity space as well, which is probably something we can talk about later. Mm, yeah, it's had a really interesting history, hasn't it? Yeah. I, I still find that fascinating. Like, what a sliding doors moment that would have been in the 70s with Nixon yes. if that statistical error hadn't happened. Yes, like, exactly. Yeah, I, I think that really blew my mind when I read about that, that we were really close to having a basic income implemented back in the 60s and 70s. Yeah. Someone just moved a decimal point the wrong way and then that that's, was it. So, that's it, yeah. And you can't correct that. You can't incorrect impressions, can you? Like, once no, people are yeah. afraid of something, yes. even if you tell them it was a mistake, that, that's more or less it. That's, exactly, yeah. and I think... Rightfully or wrongfully, we are skeptical of things that do sound a bit too good to be true. And so as soon as you get something like this, it, it really scares people. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I think that's the whole idea. There's nothing's for free, is it? There's no such yeah. thing as a free lunch, right? That's and now yes. I think when we're like, as an individual, I think the idea of income is really easy to understand. So I get money, I spend money and that, and it's gone forever. Whereas there's sort of an um, element of investment that we're talking about with universal basic income and it's something that no one can necessarily see especially yes. when it's on this large scale and when it's on like across a very very long time so when you think about an individual's um, lifetime with health I mean the fact that they could afford fresh food and groceries in their early 20s compared to looking at someone in their 50s who now has heart disease like it's so hard to tether those two things together unless you can look at maybe the statistics and then absolutely yeah. I, I think then, you've really articulated there like what we really go to the core because I think in Australia we're, we're quite fortunate in that we have a pretty solid social security program there are obviously areas for improvement and things we can always modify but um, one of the arguments for sort of universal basic income over so the social security is to do with a lot of those intangibles that you're talking about. And that are, that is things like, you know, getting access to good, fresh food and nutrition, but also things like improving mental well-being. If you know that there is a financial sort of bedrock that really does wonders in terms of improving mental health and your security in life, and therefore allowing you that freedom to take on activities uh, that will improve your health and well-being, essentially empowering individuals. Absolutely. And I think that segues really nicely into another thing you talk about in your article, which is the laziness myth. Yeah. Do you want to maybe take us through that? Because I found this fascinating. I've used this to explain it to a few people now. <laughs> yeah. So, so this is really interesting. I think whenever we talk about uh, providing payments to individuals, uh, I think there's this natural instinct that if we don't, if we get money from someone else, we're not going to work because work these days is seen simply as a way to earn money um, in order to live our lives. And there is uh, some level of truth to that, but I don't think to the extent that people uh, probably hold. So um, 
when um, a lot of these trials were done, one of the things they really wanted to look at was what happened to the number of hours worked. And the summary reports from almost every single one of these studies was that there was no massive reduction in employment. That isn't to say there was no change in employment. There were sort of roughly about an 8% decrease in the number of hours worked. And this was most significant amongst married women as well as single parents. And they found that a lot of the hours in work that were decreased were then spent on either um, looking after young children or adolescents who might delay employment to seek education or in older people uh, looking after their parents as they head into their older years. And so this really brings into an interesting discussion that we have to have um, as a society about the role of work because sort of under our current system, any decrease in the number of hours worked is seen as a bad thing. It's seen as a decrease in GDP, which is the the big number that we always seem to want to improve without really thinking about what sort of effect that has on our well-being. Uh, GDP doesn't actually measure uh, a lot of the things that make us happy um, as human beings. Um, it doesn't measure things like the time we spend with family, um, things like pollution, um, mental health. And we know that um, spending that extra few months to years in early childhood or in look, or in gaining extra education has massive long-term effects um, on the well-being of these individuals. And so this is something that sort of, as a society, we need to discuss is it, well, are we, are we willing to sort of trade off the slight decrease in the number of absolute hours worked for possible tangible improvements in health and education, which in turn you would expect has long-term economic effects as well. Absolutely. I think this is the idea that seeing a reduction in paid work hours is very different to seeing a reduction in work hours. Yes. So yeah. I think the idea that someone isn't coming into work um, necessarily as for as many hours as they were previously, it actually doesn't mean that they haven't achieved all the things they would have done uh, like otherwise. Exactly. Yeah. I'm sure anyone who's ever had part-time work as a student, we know that there are definitely some tasks that could have been done in about 15 minutes that took maybe two hours to do. Yeah. It all depends on just how much time you've been given to do it and what's the acceptable arrangements at that workplace. Exactly, yeah. In fact, it was really interesting. Um, some of the economists after the Great Depression, they thought one of the biggest uh, issues we would be dealing with in the 21st century would be having too much leisure time on our hands because they could see this trend where as societies were getting wealthier, people were working less hours because they didn't need to work as much to get the basic things in life such as food um, and housing but for some reason in the sort of the 70s and the 80s that sort of decrease in the number of hours work started getting reversed and now we're going back up that curve and we're working longer hours to sort of sustain ourselves um, and so I guess it, it's a good time to sort of think about what, what is work and why do we do work. And I think also this pandemic has shown some of the most essential jobs in the economy. Um, those critical jobs are some of the lowest paid. So there is a real disconnect between the value that we assign to work and its role in our lives and the, the monetary or the economic value of it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's what this um, pandemic has sort of shown, that there's a lot of things that we thought were very necessary for the workplace and for the workforce 
that no longer really holds true, that we don't need yeah. everyone to congregate in the one office in order to get work done and people don't need to put in set hours. It's really, it can be outcomes based. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That, that well-being as a society isn't, yeah, yeah. tied and down I, to these traditional ways of working and jobs and hours. Absolutely. Yeah. It all comes down, like, my, one of my favourite quotes from Dead Poet Society, you know, um, science, medicine, law, these are all things that are necessary to sustain life. But, you know, arts, poetry, um, yeah, exactly. music, yeah. these are things that make life worth living. And I think it. it's really hard for people to tether these th- two things together, I think, because we've always said, I work for a living, but... yeah. It's just one of those things like, well, hang on. Well, what are we actually getting for all of these hours we're putting in? Do we get exactly. a, just a couple of hours at the end of the week where we do get to enjoy our lives or are we meant to Absolutely. be just Absolutely, yeah. And um, I think no one is arguing against um, work. I think work is so important mm-hmm. in terms of structuring our lives. But it's like you said, it's like, are we doing meaningful work that is improving mm-hmm. our own lives and the lives of others? Um, and also one of the other things is, um, in America, for example, they've shown studies where the rates of entrepreneurship and creativity is decreasing, particularly in the younger generations, because we've been saddled with so much debt and insecurity looking forward that the last thing you want to think about now is sort of going on out on a limb and creating your own business. So the idea behind something like a basic income is that it gives you the freedom to sort of try things that will improve your lot and other people's lot in life. Um, Definitely. It provides that platform to say, you can survive, you can do this. Yeah, yes, yeah. yeah. I mean, Andrew Yang describes it as a freedom dividend or venture capital for the people. It's it's your money, go and invest it how you want to. Yeah. Um, but that doesn't mean it's, it's void of any criticism either. So perhaps no. we can talk about that. Absolutely. So the next thing you talk about in your article is actually whether or not this is something that's unaffordable. Yeah. So, yeah, do you want to take us through what, what do we mean by unaffordable in this context? Yeah, so this is uh, a really sort of complex argument. But obviously, if if everyone is receiving a basic income, then someone, oh, that money has to come from somewhere. And so typically, the two ways that people think about funding this is by restructuring existing social security programs. So some of this will make sense. Um, if everyone's receiving a universal basic income, then for example, student payments and the elderly pension probably don't need to exist. And um, some analysis was done. If we took all of the um, income transfer payments that exist already in Australia, we could provide $6,000 per year to each individual. However, that also uh, comes um, with some problems. There's a common argument that it may leave some people worse off, uh, people who probably need extra support Uh, for example, those with disabilities um, or need extra, um, for example, with the National Disability Insurance Scheme, that's quite a a good program to provide the necessary supports. Will creating something like a universal basic income actually take away from those existing programs? So that's one way of funding it. The other thing would be taxation. Um, So if we're providing payments to everyone, that means necessarily increasing taxation in other aspects of society. Um, So Andrew Yang, for example, in America proposes a data tax. So this idea that big technology companies like Facebook and Amazon and Twitter are using our data, but no one's really paying for that privilege. So 
Um, obviously, other forms of taxations all come with their arguments for and against, whether it's a carbon tax, a goods and services tax, or basic income taxes. Um, so it's not wholly unaffordable, but it does mean a trade-off either from other social security programs or from um, a taxation perspective. Um, and so that's really where the core of the argument is. So where do we want to take money out of the economy? Where is it acting as a disincentive mm -hmm. such that we can place it in people's hands and improve people's well-being? Mm, absolutely. And I think it's really worth always putting it back into that context of taking money out of the economy. It, it doesn't mean taking it away and giving it up for free. It's essentially we're reinvesting this in a different it, place. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and so really you're thinking about how can we channel all our activities as a society and as an economy, for want of a better word, uh, into more productive things. So um, if we take money away from, so if we use things like the data a tax, if we take money from areas where we're probably not doing too much good to each other and then reinvesting it into actual people's lives to improve their lot. Um, that's a pretty reasonable discussion to have. Definitely. I think that's the next thing you sort of talk about in your article as well. How has the universal basic income changed in the 21st century? Like how do we understand it now compared to maybe in the 70s when we had um, President Nixon first proposing it? It's a very different yeah. world now. I think uh, two big things have happened. Uh, firstly, when we think about governments and society, there's been this really big uh, push or understanding about the role of automation. Um, I think in particular with the events since the global financial crisis and in the last five to 10 years, a lot of developed countries in particular have seen a lot of their manufacturing industries sort of get wiped out as automation gets better. And I think that's a inevitable result as we get better with our technology. Um, so large swathes of sort of the American Midwest, which typically had some um, manufacturing jobs, lost all those jobs and those never really came back. Um, and that can sort of explain a lot of the political stuff that's happening in America as well. So that was one of uh, one Thing that's happened in the 21st century but the other has been within the charity and non-governmental organization space so traditionally when we think about charity we think about um, trying to give people things that they need um, so your classic campaign might be you know buy a goat for a family for example and it is quite patronizing it's this idea that we know what's good for your life better than you do and it's also incredibly inefficient uh, because we're trying to predict the needs and wants of people um, rather than allowing those people to make that decision themselves. Um, and I think it comes from this underlying sort of bias that we have that unfortunately poor people don't know how to manage their money essentially. Um, and so between these two sort of big things happening, there's been this general push to let's give people money and let people empower their own lives and give them the agency to work out how to best live their lives in a meaningful way. So on the one hand, you have governments, for example, in Finland, in parts of America now trialing universal basic income as a way around automation so that people can then learn new skills and try new ways of living to get new forms of employment rather than having to create new industries. And then in the non-governmental organizations, it's about giving money directly 
to people in developing nations um, mm. and impoverished parts of the world such that they can reinvest it in their own businesses or livelihoods. Um, and obviously that will also be coupled with whatever other support and services they may need. So if that's improving their agriculture techniques or whatnot, the core of it is providing you with income and you deciding how you want to spend your money to improve your life. Mm, absolutely. And giving that power back, I suppose, to the individual. Yeah, that trust. yeah. And this, yeah, this idea that we respect your autonomy and your mm. uh, ability to make decisions. And so as a result, there's actually been quite a few trials done. Um, there's a big trial happening right now in Kenya by a non-governmental organization called GiveDirectly.org. It's the largest sort of universal basic income trial ever done. And basically, um, they've taken uh, several villages in Kenya and given 2,000 shillings um, per month, Kenyan shillings, and that's about $22.15 American uh, dollars. Um, and basically just tracking what sort of impact this has on uh, the individuals who receive it. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what comes from that. They've also done similar trials in India um, where they've found huge improvements in terms of um, education rates for young children, um, improved sanitation, um, nutrition as well. And recently, trials were done in Finland. There was a two-year trial that they published a report right after I'd actually written this article. So it's quite interesting to go back and read that. And Finland is actually well known for being quite a generous society in terms of its existing social security programs. But their final report actually found that recipients reported greater sense of security and confidence and greater well-being. Um, but there's no real change in employment. So unemployment figures didn't really change and it didn't increase either. A lot of what we've talked about is those sort of things that you won't expect employment to change too much, but you'd expect people's mental and sort of a sense of security to mm. improve. Yeah, so all of these things that we do value as well are improving, but they're just, there's so much harder, I think, to quantify. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, how do you measure sort of um, your well-being in really easily digestible numbers? Yeah. You can't. But. That's it. If it doesn't fit on a graph, does it really exist? That's yeah. <laughs> And, and that's the battle we're sort of fighting against. But I think what you'll find is in the next couple of years, uh, there'll be a lot of this occurring, particularly in the non-governmental organization space. There is this massive push in the charity industry to stop trying to decide what's best for other people and just empowering people with the things they need to improve their livelihoods. And that may then trickle down into sort of societies as a whole, as a government run program. But I think that's a bit of a, a longer, path to time. Yeah, definitely. I think we're playing more of a long game in that respect. So. Absolutely. Yeah. Which, which is really hard when you're talking about immediate investments and people saying, well, I want to see what I've paid for. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think that's one of the troubles with running a lot of these studies. Um, this is such a massive intervention. So we want to know that what we're doing is correct and we're not having any harms. But like you said, a lot of those positive impacts and negative, if there are any, um, are likely to develop sort of years uh, or decades later. So it's really hard to quantify what sort of impact this would have, making it quite hard to you know, run your randomized control trial um, as we love. So, so a lot of it is sort of going out on, the, on a um, bit of limb of faith, but 
Um, I think there's been a lot of good anecdotal and uh, pilot studies to back a lot of the, the reasons for it. Mm, definitely sounds very promising. So it'll be really interesting to see how we move forward, especially in the current climate. So yeah, yeah. It, it, it's really interesting that like with COVID-19 that a lot of countries around the world thought about introducing it as a, even a temporary thing. Like when, you're, when you're telling everyone to lock down, then there's no more, more argument about you having to go out and find work to earn a living because you actually can't. So it, it was quite interesting that this, yeah. I'd written this article and then... Uh, and then, yeah, who would have known how, how relevant it would suddenly become as well. Yeah, yeah exactly. We definitely had a few of those moments, I think, while publishing the current issue, because at the start of the year, obviously, we started off saying, wow, 2020, what a year, this is a huge, like, milestone year. And we had no idea that this would all happen. And now, suddenly, there's a whole new context to global health that we, I honestly didn't think I appreciated until we were in the middle of it. So Absolutely, yeah. I I think I was very much in the same boat. Um, And... uh, I guess to quote Andrew Yang, who's, as I said, big proponent of this, he, he thought he was promoting UBI to safeguard against the effects that were coming in the next decade. And he thought, and he says, this pandemic has really accelerated those changes from years down to months. Um, Definitely. So watch this space for sure. Absolutely. All right. well, thank you so much, Kaj. This has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Um, do you have any final remarks for our listeners? Any advice for medical students listening or just any, anything at all? <laughs> ah, um, no, thank you for having me on the podcast. It's, it's been a wonderful chat. Um, I think just as a general thing, I think um, as doctors and medical professionals, we're always trying to improve our patients' lives. Um, and it's, I think it's important. And a lot of us who are in that global health space often think about how um, interconnected health is with all the other aspects of society. So I think it's always worth considering that um, and reading about that. If people do want to read up a bit more about universal basic income, I got a lot of the inspiration for this article from a wonderful book called Utopia for Realists by Rutger Bregman. So definitely worth a read. It's very well written. It's quite humorous as well. So, and it gives us a lot, lot of food for thought. Mm, absolutely. Oh, fantastic. Well, thank you so much again. We look forward to hearing from you maybe in future articles or future podcasts, who knows? Oh, we'll see, yeah, maybe. You'll like probably be far too world famous for us by then. So we won't be able to get We'll have to go through your people and everything. Yeah, <laughs> book an appointment months in advance. We'll try. I hope you'll remember us when you're friends. <laughs> Thank you, Stephanie. Thank you. All the best. <laughs>